Welcome back to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. Well, in today's lecture, what we're going to talk about is absorption of toxicants. This is a good lecture uh, in terms of the continuity of last lecture, where we talked about dose response, the quantitative relationship between toxicants and organisms in terms of the presentation of toxicity. What we're going to do today is talk about that primary threshold, that primary barrier that a chemical is going to interface with uh, biology, one of our comfortable uh, definitions of toxicology chemistry at the interface of biology. What we're going to do is try to look at all of the membranes uh, that chemicals have to or have the potential to cross in terms of primary toxicosis. Okay. Next time what we're going to do is talk about storage and distribution. What happens next? Once we've crossed that primary barrier of absorption, what happens within the organism's primary to some sort of presentation of clinical disease? Now this is a very interesting uh, segment of toxicology because it introduces us or starts introducing us into organismal biology. For those of you that have not had much anatomy or physiology or just have had introductory biology, uh, this is the beginning of the segment of the course where we'll start learning a little bit more about anatomy and physiology as it relates to toxicology. I can't overemphasize this is not an A&P course. What we're trying to do is give the students that don't have much background in this particular area of science or biology uh, enough information, uh, a primer if you will, uh, on A&P so that you can come up, move along with the rest of the students that have more or a stronger uh, biology background. Our learning objectives, what we are going to try to have you do is describe the ways in which toxicants uh, interact with cells. Uh, how we do that in terms of the organism, think of uh, uh, organisms, our cells, as being a somewhat massive collection of uh, differentiated cells. Uh, we're a very organized system of biology. Each one of these different uh, interfaces, these membranes uh, that present in terms of this primary interaction of chemistry and biology, uh, can have different behavior, different characteristics. However, fundamental cellular biology, fundamental cellular biochemistry is extraordinarily similar, and so we have similar potential for damage, although uh, what we find is that the presentation of toxicants, just because of the way that we interact with our environment, is different. Now think about in the past 24 hours, all of the different routes, the potential routes that you might have come across in terms of exposure to potential toxicants. What did you eat? What did you breathe? What did you drink? Okay. What did you bathe in? Did you go swimming in, a, in a, a, a natural water body that may have had some degree of low level pollution in it? All of these things are potential uh, absorption impacts in terms of the primary uh, level of toxicosis. Now we're going to try also to recognize how molecular characteristics affect entrance into a cell. Uh, this is actually through, mostly through your reading. We've introduced this concept in terms of things like log KOW, the octanol water uh, partition coefficient, these empirical sort of coefficients that allow us to look at how a cell uh, a membrane and a chemical might interact. Uh, these are some of the things that we've, we've done uh, previously in lectures and we will also do in readings. We'll try to introduce and explain some human anatomy as it is related to the integumentary which is our skin, uh, respiratory, and digestive systems. These are the three primary pathways of toxicosis. We'll try as well, uh, within the context of this lecture, summarize the routes of toxin absorption so that you have some idea of the efficiencies, uh, the rapidness. And this will have to do with the uh, level of exposure that might come across this particular pathway, this route of absorption. But also things like uh, the uh, physical and chemical characteristics of the membrane, and as well, very importantly, uh, blood flow uh, to that area. Uh, for example, our pulmonary system, as high blood flow because we have to have incredible exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. That pulmonary blood flow also allows for toxicants once respired uh, in, in, in terms of inhalation uh, to actually access and be uh, systemically distributed around the body in very rapid fashion because of the high pulmonary blood flow. Well, in terms of uh, organization of the body, one of the things that we'd like to do to introduce our uh, primer on uh, anatomy and physiology is take a look at our physical characteristics and how they relate to the chemical level of toxicants. Um, in terms of our statue of David here, 
This is uh, obviously the uh, organism level, and we have the organ system level. And so you can, for example, uh, develop a system level toxicosis. Organ level toxicosis, uh, we will do an entire lecture series on uh, target organ toxicity. Uh, in terms of the interaction on a chemical uh, to tissue basis, we can have interaction or disruption, for example, uh, necrotic tissue uh, developing in an area of toxicosis. Uh, we're showing in this particular case uh, the nephrons of the kidney um, here in the tissue level. But uh, fundamentally, what we have is cellular level biology interacting with chemicals. And this is the primary interaction level, and it's the interaction level that we will be focusing on in a discussion of absorption of toxicants. Now, we need to understand a little bit about how uh, cells organize themselves, what they do, if you want to look at it in a very, very simplistic way. Uh, cells do uh, biosynthesis, and they also do catabolism. They build things up and they break things down. They do this with uh, energy from ATP, but they also use enzymes to help carry out these uh, programmatic uh, processes, biochemical processes of cells. In terms of the biosynthesis, uh, the metabolism part of, uh, of cells, typically what happens is we have an organization of monomers being developed into larger molecules, biomolecules uh, referred to as polymers. So these uh, subunit chemicals are organized as macromolecules. And so you can think of these as the sugars, the saccharides being developed into polysaccharides, glucose into glycogen, or for example, amino acids being synthesized by cellular processes into proteins, a very important part of the impacts or potential impacts of toxicosis. Nucleotides will be organized uh, into uh, DNA and RNA and cellular replication processes. One of the things that we want to do here when we talk about chemicals interacting with biology is make sure that we understand, uh, have a good representation for what chemicals are. Now in freshman chemistry and organic chemistry, you were introduced to many different representations of chemicals. So you have uh, Lewis diagrams and stick and bar diagrams, uh, sometimes stick and ball diagrams, and sometimes things like what is on this particular uh, slide, adenylic acid, uh, which is an uh, electron distribution diagram. It gives you a sense of the 3D representation of what a chemical is. And I want you, to, in the context of the module online for this particular lecture, and also for the course, to have a good representation that, that a good understanding that the two-dimensional representations of chemicals, uh, these flat diagrams, are actually representations of three-dimensional uh, units. And these chemicals actually have within them electron densities. They have shape. Uh, they have uh, charge, uh, and uh, they have uh, the ability sometimes to uh, interact directly or indirectly with various receptors uh, in terms of the ability of a toxicant to uh, actually become a false key, for instance, in a hormonal interaction. Uh, but I want you to go online to the Protein Data Bank and actually get some of the software downloaded so that you can have uh, an experience of traveling inside of a three-dimensional molecule. Now, in terms of the composition of bacteria, if we enumerate uh, the percent of the total weight, and this example is for an E. coli bacterium, 70% uh, water. We have one molecule that makes up water. But in terms of proteins, it's about 15% of the weight, but great diversity in proteins, about 3,000 uh, total. Uh, this is a significant number in terms of diversity, and it should clue you in that in fact, these, important, these proteins are an important part of cellular physiology and what makes bacteria or these cellular uh, organisms actually work. Nucleic acids, DNA, obviously we just have one molecule of that. Uh, RNA, maybe six. Those RNA molecules are the key pathway in terms of the biosynthesis of uh, proteins. The types of molecules, 6% um, of the weight, those molecules, because they code for protein uh, manufacture uh, greater than 3,000 uh, subunits of RNA. Uh, polysaccharides, about 3%. Uh, types of molecules, about five different ones, about 20 different lipids. Uh, building block molecules of various types and inorganic ions make up the bulk of the rest. The take-home message of the slide is that protein and protein biosynthesis is an important part of what cells do 
from a diversity point of view. And so there's a lot of potential for interruption of key uh, enzyme systems, for example, enzymes or proteins, uh, key receptors, key processes, whether it be uh, structural proteins uh, in terms of the potential for birth defects. And so these are key uh, arenas of uh, toxicosis because of the sheer diversity in numbers. One of the other things that I want to uh, go back and, and have you review is just fundamental or basic cell structure here. I've highlighted on this uh, cartoon uh, out, of a, out of a biology textbook, uh, the nucleus, the mitochondrion, the cytoplasm, the ribosomes, the cell membranes. All of these are key targets of interaction for various toxicological processes. Remember that we're dealing with a chemical that is going to interact with the chemicals that make up these particular systems or subsystems of cellular structure. Okay, so for example, and I'll show you an example here in a second in terms of a, uh, uh, a picture, uh, think about what might happen with a uh, reactive chemical with the lipid membrane and how that might interact or react. What happens when, for example, uh, cellular membranes are broken and allow for all of the internal components of that cell to exit the cell, uh, to leak out? What happens when we have a disruption of various cellular triggering or receptor processes? All of these have uh, a very, very important part in terms of the interplay of chemicals and potential for toxicosis. One of the things also that we need to respect and review is uh, the uh, replication, transcription, and translation processes of the cell. Replication happens in terms of DNA, uh, in terms of cellular division. This is a nuclear process. Uh, outside, external of the, the nucleus, we have transcription processes where RNA uh, leaves uh, the nucleus and interacts with the ribosomes for translations in terms of the primary steps of protein synthesis that happen out in the cytoplasm. And so we can have uh, defects that happen in the nucleus and in terms of chemicals that can cross the nuclear membrane, and we can have ribosomal attack, for example, chemicals that might attack ribosomes and interact directly with translation. Now think of all of the uh, uh, dozens, hundreds, and in some cases thousands or uh, tens of thousands of different chemicals, amino acids or nucleotides that make up all of the sequences of all of the biochemical components here. There is great uh, opportunity, if you will, uh, for interruption, uh, disruption from toxicosis. Direct interaction in terms of just chemicals that react with other chemicals. But for example, uh, what happens if you've got an amino acid that uh, is in fact uh, a, a false amino acid in a chain? We do have many systems in terms of cellular biology to repair and replace uh, uh, defective copies of RNA, uh, even uh, cellular processes in terms of DNA repair. Uh, so we do have the ability to heal ourselves. Uh, and there is also the ability of our immune system and other systems to interact with broken cells uh, that uh, seem to be misbehaving. And we do have, in fact, the ability on a cellular basis to uh, destroy those cells that have been damaged uh, from a genetic point of view. Now, I introduced that uh, proteins, this uh, tremendous uh, diversity of biochemical products in a cell, is also a very ripe uh, point of potential toxicosis. Proteins are synthesized primarily during this process of translation at the nucleotide. The building blocks are, uh, of these proteins are amino acids. They are just chemicals themselves. And so you can have direct interactions because we have uh, some reactive chemical, a toxicant in there. And again, they can run the full range of amino acid-like compounds, for example, or just chemicals that have high degree of reactivity with the uh, electrophilic sites or the nucleophilic sites on amino acids. These proteins are made of long chains of amino acids. Uh, in terms of introductory biology, they're peptide bonds and disulfide bonds, for example, on cysteine molecule, a, a sulfur-bearing amino acid. This gives us a little bit of uh, primary structure and also secondary and somewhat tertiary structure. All of these are potential disruptions in terms of these three-dimensional, and this is a really important concept to take home, these three-dimensional uh, reactive sites uh, involved with uh, some of these proteins. 
Now, proteins uh, can be modified by heme groups, sugar groups, and various uh, phosphates in terms of their particular uh, function and what they, they do. Um, I've given you an idea here in terms of uh, reviewing a little bit of biochemistry that amino acids are just chemical compounds, alanine, aspartate, cysteine, uh, phenylalanine, uh, give you an idea. Chemicals can react with chemicals. Toxicants are chemicals, and so these are uh, points of potential uh, reactivity. And so go back to fundamental amino acid chemistry in terms of the spontaneous reaction of amino acids with uh, other amino acids to form uh, dipeptides. Uh, remembering that these amine groups, for instance, are fairly reactive. Well, what happens if we have other sorts of uh, chemically reactive uh, 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 nitrogen compounds like uh, nitrite, uh, forming potential nitrosamines, for example, uh, known carcinogens? And so these are, uh, the, the, the point here is just to take home that in toxicology we are dealing fundamentally with a cascading effect of chemicals reacting with biochemicals of some variety. In terms of uh, how we start forming structures, uh, remember that these amino acid chains, I did an experiment, I happen to have some software that uh, will give uh, lowest energy confirmations. Uh, and so I started to, in this particular software, just adding uh, uh, amino acids uh, randomly uh, in terms of these peptide bonds. Uh, in about uh, 10 or 20 minutes, I made this uh, uh, pretty nice amino acid chain here. But you notice that it starts forming at least a little bit of uh, secondary structure here, uh, some primary coiling um, around. If we space fill that instead of just looking at sticks, uh, sticks and balls and, and uh, fill it out, you can see that you can start uh, developing this uh, alpha helix. If I reduce this down to what's referred to as a ribbon uh, diagram, we can see this alpha helix secondary structure. Uh, these can also pleat over on themselves, especially if we have sulfur residues uh, at forming disulfide bonds. These uh, alpha or the secondary structures and also the tertiary structures are important parts of this dimensionality that we have in proteins. Uh, and remember back we showed a picture of uh, uh, hemoglobin. We'll do that again here in a moment. But I asked you to go onto the protein uh, structure data bank and actually turn and twist that around to get an idea of what the active site is on hemoglobin and what uh, the other structural support mechanism is. Uh, in, in terms of uh, what the reactive or potential toxin, toxicant uh, uh, activity might be. This uh, was the example from the protein data bank of hemoglobin protein structure. Um, if you start uh, representing the uh, uh, proteins as uh, the, these alpha helices, uh, you can see that the heme groups are actually tucked inside of here. There's uh, reactive uh, groups, there's other structural support, and we find this quite often in various enzymes, receptors, uh, uh, cholinesterase we'll deal with in a very similar way as a point of potential toxicosis, a uh, fairly large complex molecule with active sites that can be acted on by these relatively small molecules uh, that inhibit cholinesterase. They react irreversibly or somewhat irreversibly uh, with, with uh, cholinesterase. Now, in terms of cataloging the protein functions uh, that might be disrupted uh, during toxicosis, uh, we have to understand the full array of potential functions we have for proteins. Uh, they can act as antibodies uh, where they recognize molecules of invading organisms, and this is uh, a chemical reactivity, uh, typically uh, one that's mediated by larger or macromolecules. Uh, but sometimes smaller molecules can actually react with uh, other biochemicals to form haptins, and these haptins then will have an antibody uh, reaction. Proteins can form receptors, uh, which is, uh, can be a part of the cell membrane. It can recognize other proteins or chemicals, and there can be some uh, chemotaxis or a chemical uh, information chain, a telegraph, a chemical telegraph, if you will, chain of reactions that initiate uh, some sort of uh, uh, cellular process. Proteins can function as enzymes where they can assemble or digest uh, different components or chemicals uh, in uh, biosynthesis or in catabolic processes. 
Proteins can function as neurotransmitters, as hormones that can trigger various receptors and the cascade of potential responses from uh, receptor hormone interaction, for example. There can be structural uh, attributes of proteins where they form uh, channels or pores. Uh, sometimes the channels and pores are on the cellular basis in terms of allowing transport of uh, various chemicals such as calcium uh, into the cell. Uh, sometimes these can be structural uh, in terms of uh, uh, just the macrostructures uh, that we have in our bodies. In terms of uh, cellular absorption, uh, we can find uh, several different processes that happen in terms of a chemical and a membrane. And these membranes are uh, the membranes of cellular membranes uh, and tissues made up of groups of cells. You can recall from freshman chemistry that diffusion is uh, a, a concentration gradient uh, directed process uh, by thermodynamics. If you recall Fick's law, uh, high concentrations will migrate to lower concentrations. And so typically in an intoxication, we have a higher concentration on one side of the membrane and we will have diffusion via the concentration gradient towards the other side of the membrane. We can have facilitated uh, diffusion because uh, there are certain uh, processes to facilitate transport across membranes. These are membrane surface carrier proteins. And so for example, uh, you can get uh, active transport of lead, which uh, uh, it has a charge uh, similar to calcium uh, across membrane via calcium transport uh, proteins. Uh, glucose transport is another uh, key uh, metabolic uh, facilitated diffusion cycle associated with toxicosis. We can have active transport that uh, does require some sort of energy. It's an upgradient uh, transport, for example. Um, we can have endo or exocytosis. Uh, endocytosis uh, is kind of a, uh, a, uh, a swallowing, if you will. An exo is a, a release of uh, material on a molecular basis, typically. Uh, so with exo, it's spitting it out. With endo, it's taking it in across a membrane. Uh, these can also be referred to as uh, phago or pinocytosis. Uh, phagocytosis is an engulfing. A pino is uh, a, um, and it's an engulfing and, and, and it actually creates a membrane-lined membrane, membrane lined, uh, uh, vacuole, if, if you will, uh, within the cell, or a penocytosis where it actually expels a membrane-encircled uh, uh, waste product. Um, endocytosis uh, is, is another form of uh, phagocytosis. I promised you a, a cell membrane uh, diagram and I give it to you here and again, this goes back to just identifying that, in fact, cell membranes are made up of chemicals, and we're talking about the ability of chemicals as toxicants to interact with chemicals as biochemicals, making up some sort of level of biology. In terms of absorption, we need to be concerned primarily about membrane interactivity, uh, because at some point in time, to have an impact on the organism, the chemical is going to have to cross a membrane. Membranes are made up of uh, these uh, uh, fatty acids. Uh, the, uh, the membrane itself is largely hydrophobic. Uh, it allows for uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, inner chains to be uh, 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 kind of linked in this uh, lipid bilayer. We have the ability to have pores that are developed uh, to transport uh, uh, from uh, these integral membrane proteins uh, from the outside of the cell wall to the inside. We have uh, intercellular uh, proteins. We have extracellular proteins. We have proteins that are in uh, the membrane itself that allow for, for example, uh, receptor uh, interactions and potential chemotaxis within the cell itself. There are four types of cells that we need to be uh, concerned with in terms of uh, uh, physiology. Um, they are epithelial, and these are the coverings, the linings, and the secretions. This is the primary tissue that we're concerned about in absorption of toxicants. Uh, connective cells gives us uh, support and energy. Um, 
Uh, for example, uh, many of the support tissues and the keratinized tissues, uh, and as well, uh, our uh, vascular system is referred to as a uh, connective tissue. We have uh, muscle tissues uh, that give us movement, and we have nervous tissues that give us that have electrical impulses. Uh, they give us information. They transport uh, sensation from one part of the body, body to the other, as well as uh, our central nervous system. In terms of the interactions, uh, obviously all types of cells can interact uh, with toxicants in terms of the potential for damage. In terms of absorption, we have to be most worried about epithelial cells. Uh, in terms of target organ toxicity, we'll talk at length about uh, neurotoxicity and the interaction, the direct interaction of uh, neurotoxins and the nervous system. It's not a bad idea to understand the uh, dimensionality of epithelial cells. We can classify those as squamous cells, uh, cuboidal and columnar, and these are just morphological classifications. Uh, they can be uh, identified as simple in terms of simple squamous, simple cuboidal, and simple columnar cells. And we can also have stratified layers of these uh, squamous cells uh, as well. These cells uh, with their uh, membranes make up the th these outer linings that we need to be most concerned about in absorptions of toxicants. The other category I'll talk about, and I won't introduce all the different uh, bone tissues in terms of connective and support tissues. Um, there are some uh, diagrams in the readings uh, for that. Uh, we are uh, interested, however, in uh, nerve cells because of the communication uh, between nerve cells and the potential for neurotoxicity. Uh, not necessarily absorption, but it is something that from an anatomy physiology basis, there is on the website uh, an animation of neurotoxicity that uh, identifies, at least from a cartoon point of view, something that we've put together to show you uh, an introductory level of the phenomenological uh, illustration of uh, neurotoxicity from cholinesterase inhibition. Well, in terms of, again, continuing our uh, introductory anatomy and physiology, we have 11 organ systems, the integumentary system, something we'll talk about at length because uh, the integumentary, or our skin, uh, is the largest organ in the body. Our skeletal uh, organ system, muscular system, nervous system, the endocrine system, which is a target for uh, endocrine disruption. Our cardiovascular system and lymphatic system moving much slower uh, into drainage system for the body. Our digestive system, the respiratory system, and then our uh, urinary system, which uh, allows for uh, excretion of toxicants, and as well the reproductive system, which is gender specific. Now, absorption is best defined as the process by which uh, toxicants cross the epithelial cell barrier, okay? So there's the take home uh, for this particular lecture. And in terms of the routes of absorption, uh, we have uh, three primary routes, the integumentary or percutaneous. So this is a dermal transport uh, that goes uh, through uh, the outer skin uh, layer. We can have respiratory absorption, and so we can think of all of the different pathways involved in respiration. Uh, then we'll talk about in detail these as well. And then the digestive route of uh, absorption. I put a picture here of uh, obviously a laboratory scientist that is quite worried about all three routes. I could uh, identify that uh, uh, his or her mouth is uh, covered, uh, any sort of membranes are covered, uh, hands are covered, and, and uh, the idea in terms of uh, limiting the potential exposure with either a pathogen or uh, toxicant in this particular case, uh, this individual is covering all of the potential routes of absorption, integumentary, respiratory, and digestive. Now let's go through these three routes, the integumentary system route. The system is made up of skin and hair, uh, nails and the mammary glands. And yes, boys, we do have mammary glands, just in case you haven't checked that out. Um, skin is the largest uh, organ in the body. Um, it uh, is consisting of the epidermis, the dermis, and the hypodermis. In the epidermis, we have a vascular uh, keratinized stratum corneum. This is the uh, thick, uh, somewhat uh, uh, dead cell, uh, 15 to 20 cells thick, uh, that's on the outside of it. 
Uh, it provides most toxicant protection. Uh, people that work with chemicals, uh, you will find them using a lot of hand lotion to keep their skin very healthy because breaks in your skin allow for rapid transport of toxicants. Uh, dermis is the next uh, layer down. This is highly vascularized. This is where we start finding nerve endings, hair follicles, and sweat and oil glands. Those sweat and oil glands are also uh, have the ability of uh, toxicant uh, uh, transport. We have hypodermis, which is connective and adipose tissue that is in the next layer down. We can take a look at this with this cartoon, which simplifies uh, generic uh, skin. And you can see the stratum corneum up here, uh, a layer of uh, keratinized, uh, often dead cells, uh, followed by the epidermis, the dermis, and then you get into the adipose uh, tissue. You see the vascularization here in terms of the arterial and the venal, venous systems, uh, the capillaries uh, that uh, provide nutrients uh, flow and the transport of waste materials, cellular waste materials out of this. That transport also allows for any uh, uh, toxicants that have crossed the uh, membrane barrier uh, in terms of the epithelial skin integumentary barrier uh, to actually be transported to other parts of the body. Uh, if, for example, we have a, um, in a chemical that uh, is highly uh, transportable in terms of transdermal uh, toxicity, there will be the uh, potential for it to actually enter the blood system uh, via the capillaries uh, in our skin. This is a short case study and what I'm trying to do here uh, within the context of this lecture is talk about a couple of examples. Uh, you can probably think of many yourself in terms of potential toxicosis or incidents that you've had in your own uh, history in terms of, uh, I don't know, perhaps uh, uh, brushing up with a toxic plant, uh, an insect bite, uh, some sort of uh, uh, toxic reaction or allergic reaction uh, that happens in a very visible area uh, in terms of uh, something you can see on your skin. Uh, this particular uh, case is about a Kenyan beetle toxin. This is uh, describing uh, this unfortunate uh, young man with a lesion uh, down the side of his face. He found this colorful uh, bombardier beetle, and uh, this uh, particular species of uh, genome of beetles, uh, it's related to the species uh, Brachnius, um, actually has a mixing chamber uh, in its body, and its particular defensive uh, 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 array is involved with a mixture of uh, chemicals. Uh, these are quinone-based chemicals. Uh, they, uh, the mixing chambers combine two very reactive chemicals, biochemicals, uh, in the animal. Uh, it develops a very, very high temperature, and this hot caustic uh, uh, poison comes uh, streaming out of the beetle as a protective uh, envenomation uh, and it's directed at threats. Uh, this boy, I'm sure, was uh, saw this colorful beetle and thought it was quite interesting and found out that this is not a beetle that you play with. Respiratory system route is our next uh, uh, route of absorption. Uh, in terms of the types of uh, material, it's a little bit different than our skin. The skin is stratified or layered uh, squamous epithelial tissue, whereas the respiratory system is uh, squamous epithelium, ciliated columnar, and cuboidal uh, uh, epithelium. Uh, the ciliated uh, columnar cells are very interesting. Uh, many of you that have ever worked in a dusty environment, uh, perhaps sawdust or cleaning an old attic without uh, any sort of uh, respiratory protection, know that uh, perhaps for a day afterwards you're coughing up uh, 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 sputum that might be uh, quite colorful, uh, gray or black in some cases, if it uh, depends upon how dusty the environment was. If you've worked in agricultural fields out in dusty fields, you've seen this as well. Um, these uh, cells are non-keratinized, so they don't have that kind of hard outer, uh, uh, almost callus-like tissue our skin uh, can develop. Uh, we have essentially a, a, a tremendous amount of turnover of these uh, cells uh, as well in the gut. Uh, these uh, ciliary, ciliary uh, tissues are quite interesting in that they provide um, a, uh, a very uh, peristalsis sort of motion. Uh, in it allows to trap uh, particulates. Uh, it allows to uh, take fluids and actually escalate them up so that we cough out uh, some of the materials that we have uh, inhaled. The respiratory system route is made up of three primary uh, sections, the nasopharyngeal, the tracheobronchial, and the pulmonary system, which is the lung interacting with the uh, blood system. 
This cartoon gives you uh, at least an illustration. Uh, so we have the nasopharynx here. Uh, in terms of our respiratory tracts, the nasal cavity and the oral cavity. That comes down into the trachea. Uh, it goes into the primary uh, bronchus, uh, bronchial chambers, into the lung itself. There's a distribution network of uh, bronchi and bronchioles. Uh, these bronchus are essentially major pathways, major highways. Uh, the bronchioles are the minor sort of side roads. These bronchioles distribute air pathway into the uh, very, very high surface area uh, alveolus. Uh, these tissues are uh, highly vascularized to allow for these, uh, uh, the exchange of waste materials from respiration, primarily carbon dioxide. But it also could be an elimination product of a volatile metabolic product. Um, and, uh, f for example, uh, it allows also for the uh, inhaled oxygen to be transported uh, into the oxygenated blood supply uh, and distributed from the heart. Uh, the pulmonary system has a high rate of uh, blood flow. The uh, various uh, alveolus have extremely high surface area. Uh, if I haven't said it yet in the course, uh, uh, the numbers of uh, square meters is about the same as uh, half of volleyball court. This is a very, very high surface area membrane. It allows for very rapid uh, transport of oxygen across this membrane uh, in terms of our respiratory metabolism. In the nasopharyngeal uh, system route, we have the nostrils, the nasopharynx, the oropharynx, and the laryngopharynx. Uh, we have hairs and mucus uh, in this system that are enabled to trap uh, greater than five micron particulates. Uh, many of you have seen uh, air warnings. In fact, uh, right now with uh, a number of forest fires, not only are we worried about the smoke, but also uh, particulates uh, that might be in uh, airborne uh, from combustion processes. Uh, you'll sometimes hear the uh, term PM10. Uh, this is particles uh, that have a 10 micron or less diameter. These are the ones that give us most concern in terms of respiratory toxicity because you start to get to that threshold where um, these will go to the furthest reaches uh, of lung tissue and have very limited ability to come back up the mucociliary escalator. In the tracheobronchial region, it's made up of the trachea of the bronchi, the bronchioles, again, these uh, major highways going to minor highways, finally to country roads as it goes kind of in the smaller, smaller interstitial spaces. Um, we have a uh, cilial action uh, on these particular tissues. The mucus, the luminal mucus, which is lining uh, this uh, uh, piece of uh, anatomy, can trap uh, two to five micron particulates in water-soluble aerosols and gases. Uh, in terms of respiratory toxicology, if you breathe a uh, water-reactive toxicant, there can be site interactions. So, for example, uh, acids or bases uh, that have been volatilized are very reactive with water, and so you can actually have tremendous amount of caustic damage, contact surface damage, uh, on these tissues. Uh, for example, other chemicals, and we'll talk about uh, Bhopal uh, plasticizers uh, that came out in an occupational uh, industrial accident, um, uh, interacted with water, causing tremendous amount of uh, damage to this particular structure. And in terms of the pulmonary exchange, this happens at the alveoli. These have extremely high surface area, so high amounts of gas exchange. Uh, and that's why, for example, uh, if you do breathe something, uh, for example, sulfide-type gases like hydrogen sulfide, you typically have a gag, a very fast uh, uh, gag reflex where you stop breathing. Uh, this is probably an involuntary reaction, uh, kind of a brainstem sort of reaction that has come with us uh, through our evolutionary development. Um, uh, but what happens quite often is we find ourselves being exposed to uh, things that we can't smell, we can't sense. Uh, this is why, for example, uh, that they put uh, methylmercaptans, or very smelly sulfur compounds, in the natural gas in your houses if you have a gas stove. Uh, the idea is to make you have the ability to sense the gas, uh, which you cannot. Methane doesn't have a uh, particularly strong smell. And there are many airborne toxicants that don't have that sensory sort of warning that, for example, sulfide compounds do. 
these, uh, uh, the pulmonary system uh, does allow for this exchange, and in fact, uh, as you will learn, this is also important for metabolites that are volatile. And I use the example that many uh, selenium-based uh, toxicants are actually uh, uh, very much like the sulfur compounds in that they smell. They give you kind of a garlic breath. Uh, and there are many uh, metabolic uh, uh, processes that will give us uh, off-breath as well. Uh, ketosis is one of them. Um, if you've got metabolic ketosis, uh, you will have a very metallic smelling breath because of the byproducts of that particular metabolic problem. This is a lung dissection. Uh, this is a bovine lung. This is something I did uh, uh, one afternoon, uh, one summer's afternoon. Uh, this was from an abattoir slaughterhouse, uh, from, uh, and I recovered this particular uh, lobe of uh, a cow lung. And this was a fairly painstaking uh, process, painstaking uh, primarily because of the uh, bronchus and bronchioles, this dissection in here. This is a very hard material. This takes uh, some very sharp scissors to dissect. Uh, it uh, doesn't cut very easily. This is a structural uh, pipe, if you will. Um, whereas, as you get down into some of these uh, high uh, membrane type tissues, this is uh, somewhat gelatinous uh, uh, based tissue uh, that, uh, when it is uh, full of air, um, is a very wet, moist uh, 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 tissue. This gives you a closer look at the bronchus bronchial intersections. You can kind of see we've got the major highways and we've got the, the routes off the major highways and then we have the country roads, uh, uh, the various uh, bronchioles uh, that pass again uh, from uh, larger uh, areas and you can kind of see what this tissue looks like and you can see the, some of the serrations or the, the morphological structures uh, in these bronchus bronchial um, uh, structures. Uh, this is, uh, if you've never uh, done this sort of thing, you can actually uh, do this quite easily uh, uh, by finding somebody that perhaps butchers their own animals uh, for meat and doing a little bit of anatomy physiology uh, in someone else's backyard there. In terms of an example of respiratory toxicosis, in 1984, a tragic incident in Bhopal, in India. Uh, you can uh, search around on the internet and find out tremendous amounts of information of this particular tragedy. Uh, what happened was there was a Union Carbide plant in Bhopal, India. Uh, one of the chemicals involved in this particular uh, manufacturing process, and this was uh, one of the chemicals they produced there, was carbaryl, an insecticide we talked about in uh, lecture four. Uh, it's a carbamate, an N-methyl carbamate uh, insecticide. But one of the starting materials, methyl isocyanate, uh, is also uh, a plasticizer. Uh, it's commonly used in many industrial processes, uh, even uh, for particle board manufacturing in terms of wood products, various uh, uh, materials that require plastization. Uh, it's a chemical that does react uh, you know, with water. Uh, it can polymerize, and so imagine breathing this particular material in. Uh, it was a, a, an industrial accident, a fairly tragic one, in that it happened at night, and so many people were intoxicated in their sleep. Um, you can read about uh, the uh, social justice and injustice of this particular uh, situation uh, in many uh, documents uh, online. Uh, it was a tragedy because of the nefarious mode of action of this particular chemical. Um, it, because it is a cyanide-containing compound, it can metabolize cyanide and lead to cyanosis. It can also uh, directly damage, because of its reactivity with water, uh, lung tissues and cells. And so even many of the survivors of this particular incident still have impaired lung capacity. Another case study in terms of an industrial uh, occupational exposure you may have read about uh, in 2000, 2002. Uh, this hit the news. Uh, this was uh, a case of fixed obstructive lung disease, and these were in workers at a microwave popcorn factory. Uh, that smell and taste of butter popcorn uh, comes from a particular chemical that they were adding in this microwave popcorn factory. A uh, occupational physician noticed a, uh, a cluster of uh, fixed obstructive lung disease in workers from this one particular plant. 
It seemed that uh, people that had worked there the longest had a significant amount of lung damage, uh, impaired uh, respiratory function, and uh, there were uh, a number of individuals with sufficient uh, chronic scarring that they had to actually uh, get lung transplants. And so this was a severe toxicosis. They'd all worked at the plant um, about the same time in the 1990s uh, through 2000. In terms of the epidemiological studies and then the occupational uh, exposure studies, they isolated to some of the volatiles that they were using, the chemical compounds that were volatilized during this particular food uh, processing process. Uh, they isolated a couple of them, diacetyl, which is 2,3-butanedione, the chemical structure is on here. This is one of the chemicals that gives us that sensory butter flavor, if you will. Um, they did identify, because of all the different processes, about 100 volatile organic compounds in the factory air. Uh, this particular chemical uh, does have some tremendous, uh, some level of uh, uh, reactivity. The air concentration was about 18 parts per million, and so you could smell it, and uh, I would say at 18 parts per million, probably taste it. This is, uh, again, um, typically 18 parts per million will be a milligram per cubic meter in terms of air concentrations. And so they did find this, uh, and uh, in terms of uh, addressing the needs, not only in terms of the impaired uh, health of uh, some of the workers, but also uh, creating a safe work environment, uh, they uh, did uh, um, uh, do a tremendous amount of uh, re-engineering of the plant to isolate any volatiles uh, from the workplace. Our next uh, route of absorption that we're going to talk about is the digestive system route. Uh, the digestive system involves the mouth, the oral cavity, the esophagus, the stomach, the small intestine, the rectum, and the anus. Um, this is important not only for exposure, but also for elimination, and we'll talk about how that happens. The residence time, in terms of our gut, can determine uh, some amount uh, of the uh, destruction of tissues or potential uh, destruction of tissues uh, uh, because of the uh, uh, residence time at a particular site. We have uh, in our mouth a relatively short amount of time, uh, and if it's very reactive, typically we're going to have some uh, the sensations, the same nerve endings that give us the wonderful flavors and tastes of various chemicals, uh, uh, including, for example, capsaicin. Uh, capsaicin is the hot and red chili peppers. Uh, it's a neurotoxin. It's, uh, for many of us, a very flavorful neurotoxin. Um, have you ever noticed the uh, commercials uh, for capsaicin lotions uh, for people that have arthritis or some sort of pain? Uh, so the next time you eat that spicy meal, know that in fact uh, capsaicin is a, uh, can be in industrial grades a very, very potent uh, neurotoxin. But quite often, if uh, we have a tremendous amount of uh, potential for tissue damage with a toxicant, uh, we'll have a gag reflex uh, or uh, uh, the uh, urge to spit it out um, because it does, in fact, start burning or having some sort of uh, um, tissue-damaging impact that will affect all the nerve endings in the mouth. Excuse me. Um, we can also uh, have uh, toxicants that uh, take quite a while to have their uh, mode of action uh, actually initiated. On uh, in the small intestine, for example, there's a long residence time, greater than 24 hours typically, or potentially greater than 24 hours. Um, but absorption of toxicants can take place uh, anywhere. And uh, the, uh, in terms of facilitated absorption, uh, remember that when we eat foods, we have tissues in our gut, our gastrointestinal tract, that are actually optimized for absorption of many uh, chemicals. And so we have the potential for high blood flow, tremendous amount of uh, membrane transport, uh, facilitated transport for nutrients. Um, all of these systems can enable uh, toxicosis in terms of a digestive system route. Uh, there was one time uh, in the course I used to give up a slide, uh, and uh, you can probably find this if you search around of a depressed, clinically depressed individual that uh, uh, tried to commit suicide by drinking a cocktail of uh, whiskey and Drano. Uh, this was a, a very disastrous uh, impact in terms of uh, the caustic. I actually burned uh, this uh, unfortunate individual's uh, 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 digestive system uh, all the way uh, down to uh, the small intestine. 
and uh, the individual did survive uh, with first aid and with hospitalization, but no longer had a digestive route. And what they had to do to repair this unfortunate individual was actually take his small intestine, put it outside the rib cage if it's still under the, under the uh, skin, and connect it uh, with his uh, esophagus uh, so that uh, he could still eat and absorb nutrients, although because he had a very, very short uh, digestive system, no longer had the ability to digest uh, the way he needed to, and so had about a 10-minute, 20-minute residence time of food. And so uh, uh, this is, uh, if nothing, uh, a, an example of what happens with highly reactive materials. I often uh, talk to chemistry students that happen to touch some uh, base solutions, and uh, the uh, Drano or lye solution is a base solution. If you've ever been in a laboratory and you've touched uh, that material, you'll notice that uh, it feels soapy on your hands. It feels soapy because it's actually uh, turning the fats in your skin into soap, and it's uh, digesting or uh, dissolving uh, some of your uh, uh, skin, your epithelial cells. The GI tract uh, is uh, uh, complex but simple at the same time. Uh, we have, uh, uh, in terms of uh, salivary glands that aid in uh, enzymes for digestion, we have the pharynx and the esophagus, essentially a long pipe down to the stomach where the primary uh, digestive enzymes uh, happen in terms of uh, processes and in initial stages of digestion. Um, this goes to, uh, into the, um, uh, uh, the uh, cecum and then into the uh, small intestine and finally into the uh, rectum for elimination. There's a fairly high uh, vascular flow uh, in the intestinal tract. Uh, this uh, flow is for the absorption of nutrients uh, for, uh, from our foods in terms of life support and the molecules of life. Um, the uh, energy and fat, uh, proteins, uh, and digested amino acids are actually transported uh, directly uh, through the portal vein. Uh, uh, into the uh, liver. Uh, the liver can actually then bio use these as uh, um, uh, the reactants in biosynthesis, these uh, metabolic reactions to make various proteins, uh, make various uh, uh, life support uh, systems. Uh, as well, the liver can also uh, release back into the intestinal tract uh, via the, the gallbladder, and we'll talk about this in target organ toxicology. Uh, the gallbladder uh, does uh, empty or drain uh, bile acids uh, back into the intestinal tract, uh, and it gives us this uh, recirculation we refer to as enterohepatic recirculation. In the resources on the course website, we have another cartoon showing you how enterohepatic recirculation can actually yield uh, a redistribution and re-exposure uh, to toxicants because once released back into the gastrointestinal tract through the bile ducts, um, bile transport system, uh, it has the ability to be reabsorbed and uh, re-taken up by the portal vein and transported back uh, to the liver and to the rest of the body. In terms of the digestive system, we have a significant amount of uh, tissue differentiation at uh, each level. Um, we have the mucosa, which is the uh, outside part. This is uh, avascular, um, simple squamous or columnar epithelium. Uh, in some areas, we have these morphological structures, and I'll show you some uh, slides of this, uh, where we have uh, a very high amount of surface area because of these microstructures. They're referred to as villi and microvilli. Now, these little finger-like structures aid in increasing uh, absorption because of increasing uh, surface area. And so again, the morphology of this particular uh, tissue is uh, essentially engineered, if you will, by biology for uh, absorption, and, and this is absorption of nutrients. Below that, we have the submucosa, where we find blood flow uh, and the lymph system interface. Uh, why would we have a lymph system interface? Uh, primarily for uh, one of the reasons is transport of, uh, of waste products, but also for transport of immune uh, reactive cells, uh, the lymph system, remembering that uh, many of the things that we can eat might have uh, some level of potential pathogenic uh, infection potential. 
Um, the next layer down is the muscularis, uh, which we have movement. This gives us the peristalsis uh, that, that uh, we have in our digestive system to move uh, uh, solids uh, from the higher levels to the lower levels of our gastrointestinal tract. Um, anything that uh, uh, shocks uh, the muscles uh, will get us out of peristalsis. And uh, for those of you who have experienced constipation for whatever reason or illness, uh, have experienced uh, uh, the loss of the uh, movement. On the outside of the, uh, um, uh, this particular uh, digestive system is the serosa or the casing. Uh, this uh, casing, uh, you've, many of you have eaten sausage. Uh, it's the casing from uh, various animal intestines is used in sausage manufacturing. Uh, there are some uh, ethnic soups, uh, for example, that are made out of intestines. Uh, Menindo is uh, uh, a Mexican dish, and there are s several others. And so you've seen some of these uh, systems and some of these uh, differentiated uh, tissues in terms of your own diet. The way this looks in terms of the small intestine, it's a pipe. Uh, the pipe has these layers that we just went through. Um, we have the, um, the villa, the mucosa, and underneath it the submucosa and the muscularis and then the, the outside casing. You can see that in the villus and the microvilli that appear on here, we have these epithelial cells. Um, they're highly vascularized because we are trying to uh, impact transport of uh, nutrients. Uh, we also have uh, uh, lymph vessels in here because we have the potential uh, impact of uh, bacterial uh, perforations, uh, infectious processes because of uh, food that has uh, uh, some degree of uh, uh, infectious uh, microbiology. And we're also managing the microbiology that occurs normally and naturally in our intestines. If we take a look at this uh, from a different point of view, and uh, one of the things I'm going to try to alert you is, is this is not a, a, a medical uh, med micro uh, course, but uh, quite often we'll be looking at two-dimensional representations uh, such as this, uh, which in this case is a medical illustration. This is a two-dimensional rendering of uh, three-dimensional subjects. Uh, it's always good in terms of uh, histology and histopathology to remember that when we are doing a microscopic uh, view uh, that we are typically taking a three-dimensional object and looking at it from one particular direction, north, south, east, or west. And our view can change, uh, uh, the direction that we are viewing can change how the uh, uh, structure is represented. And so, for example, in this case of a villi, even though this is a three-dimensional object, uh, we might uh, think about a cucumber. If I were to slice a cucumber on its side, it might have this sort of representation. But if I diced the cucumber across, uh, it would have a circular representation. And so always have that uh, in the back of your mind when you're viewing a histology slide. This is a, uh, a histology slide. This is microscopic view. It's uh, stained to give some of the substructure of the villi. And you can see, again, a very high amount of uh, surface area in terms of uh, the cells that are presented on there and maximizing the uh, membrane presentation uh, to the intestinal tract, again, to maximize the potential for absorption. Well, finally, let's finish up uh, today talking about absorption, uh, talking about a case study or an incident. Um, this was uh, in uh, California. It is where it actually started. Uh, and this was in 1985. This is the 4th of July. And we Americans like our watermelon for our 4th of July picnics. Uh, in this particular situation, uh, there was individuals uh, that presented to a uh, uh, emergency room with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, profuse sweating, uh, excessive tearing, muscle fasciculations, or just vibrations, or rapid twitching, and bradycardia, or rapid heartbeat. Uh, aldicarb, this is another carbamate uh, insecticide, and it's a potent uh, acetylcholinesterase uh, neurotoxin. Uh, it in inhibits uh, transmission of, uh, of uh, neural impulses. Uh, it allows for uh, the impulses to essentially not be stopped, and that's why we have these, uh, uh, these sorts of uh, fasciculations. Uh, this particular insecticide is not registered on watermelons, and this is where we get back to uh, these economic poisons and the testing that's required. 
As it turns out, uh, we know what chemicals can be used on what plants. This is what happened when there is a violative use. This particular violative use happened because uh, the growers noticed that the watermelons would grow bigger with uh, dosing of this particular uh, insecticide. Uh, there seemed to be some sort of uh, hormonal interaction with this chemical and the watermelon plants. Uh, people that do uh, metabolism of some of these materials note that uh, different types of plants will metabolize or synthesize or sequester pesticides in different ways. Uh, over the next month, about 762 probable or possible cases were reported. Uh, the most severe signs and symptoms included various seizures, uh, loss of consciousness, cardiac arrhythmia, hypotension, dehydration, uh, anaphylaxis, uh, like an anaphylactic shot, a, an immune cascading response. Uh, one individual uh, did die of a heart attack. Uh, this may have just been brought on by a pre-existing condition coupled with the stress of uh, this particular food poisoning. I'll have various uh, types of uh, uh, case studies such as this one uh, in this course. And what we'll do is uh, actually uh, refer to uh, uh, a publication by the CDC called uh, Mortality and Morbidity Weekly. And these are weekly clinical reports. As I said, in terms of dose-response testing, we don't test on humans uh, for toxicants. We do for pharmaceuticals in phase one, phase two, phase three studies. That, that was a part of your reading uh, in terms of the toxicology tutor from the National Library of Medicine. But we don't do that with, with toxicants. And so we use these case studies to know and understand uh, the mode of action, what happens in terms of uh, dose response. Uh, it allows us to collect from the unfortunate situations of, in this particular case, a food poisoning, or in other cases, uh, a depressed individual uh, trying to commit suicide, the dose response of the interactivity, uh, and in this particular case, what happens uh, as these toxicants get absorbed uh, from, in this case, gastrointestinal tract, digestive system. Next time, what we're going to do is talk about storage and distribution, the next step in our sources, pathways, receptors, and controls. What we're going to try to do is take a look at what happens once these toxins have crossed the, the epithelial barrier uh, via our skin, via our respiratory or digestive system, what happens next in terms of its ability to be distributed around the organism. Until that time, we'll see you. Thanks.